You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from portions of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 through 8. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2, 21 to 25. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis 3, 6-7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1-8 Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, switching gears here. Um, Now, in telling you already what the sermon topic for today is, right, talking about biblical sexuality, um, the perk of that is your interest is already piqued, okay? Um, I don't need to go in and have some sort of elaborate setup, some some great introduction um, to really capture your attention. It's already there. So that's great. Um, But I do want to just give a a little bit of background, a little context for those who might be new to Sacred City Church. Um, While So one of the things that we do is we preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. Now, if you've ever read the Bible, you know that the Bible talks a lot about um, sexuality. It talks about um, sexual immorality. It talks about that our bodies belong to God. It's something that is, is repeated throughout Scripture often. And as often as it comes up, We talk about it, but it's not necessarily the norm for us to have an entire sermon that's based on the topic of sexuality. So this is a little bit of a unique sermon in in what we have today. Now, the reason that we've come to have a, a sermon specific to this topic is because we've been studying Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 over the last 12, 13 weeks um, in our sermon series called Origins, and what the first three chapters of of the book of the Bi- of, of the whole Bible kind of key us into is, is the main narrative arc of Scripture. We see God, one, creating in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God creates the world, and he creates it good. In fact, he gets done uh, creating. He says it's very good, and then on the seventh day, God rests. Then we see, as we move into Genesis chapter 3, that sin enters into the world, and this very good creation now has a 
a very big problem, that sin has corrupted what God has made, and it's distorted, and it's fallen, and it's broken. But before we get to the end of chapter 3, God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 that one day God will crush the head of the serpent, who's the tempter of Adam and Eve, the one who allured them into taking the fruit that was forbidden and eating it. And God says that I will have seed of the woman who will crush the seed of the serpent. So we see that there is promised redemption in the very beginning of the Bible. In fact, and then the rest of the Bible is basically telling us how that redemption will work itself out. Now we stand at a point now where we know that redemption is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so with all of these pieces, creation, fall, redemption in Jesus, what we're going to do today is look at sexuality through the lens of creation, fall, and redemption. So the first thing that we need to recognize is that sex was God's idea. Sex was not some clever discovery that, that man, they were bored one day and were like, I wonder what happens if that's not at all the case. God had designed sex from the start. And what Genesis 1 and 2 is, is really a slow reveal of this reality. First, we see God creates Adam. He's by himself. All the other animals are running around. And God says, it is not good for man to be alone. And so God, from the man, takes a rib and he crafts a woman who is to be a good helpmate, a counterpart to Adam's masculinity. And then God, we see, brings them together. It's the very first wedding ceremony. God brings the woman to the man, and you see Adam erupt with, with gladness. He's, he's obviously attracted to her. Last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And God unites them together in marriage. It says the two become one flesh. We see here marriage is not a cultural uh, creation. Marriage is created in the beginning. It was God's idea. Then, third, we see the fact that men and women are physically compatible. Um, they are not the same. They are different by God's design. And that's part of the two becoming one flesh. And then the fourth thing that we see as you make your way through Genesis 1 and 2 is that God actually commands Adam and Eve. He gives them a cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Now, this, this cultural mandate involves tending to the ground, like, culti like extracting the hidden glory of creation, so developing enterprise, technology, all of those things, like any kind of, of development they were supposed to do. But part of this also involved procreating, filling the earth with, with their own offspring so that they would have help in carrying the load of the cultural mandate of filling and subduing the earth. So in other words, the fourth thing is that God actually commands Adam and Eve to go and make babies. So there it is, Genesis 1 and 2, pre-fall, before sin enters the world, sex is part of God's design. Now, though we stand in a point where technology makes uh, alternative methods possible for conception, like IVF, for example, um, though it's costly and uh, it, it requires some very serious ethical considerations, sexual intercourse is the only natural way to make a baby. It's the only way. One man and one woman brought together physically, it's the only way. And it's a genius idea God had. And you can say amen. amen. Right? So, so here we have the only way to fill the Great Commission, or not Great Commission, the cultural mandate is to, to be brought together. Now, what we see in Eden is we have one man and one woman. God has already wed them. They've been brought together. The two are as one flesh. Genesis chapter 2, 25 tells us that they were naked and unashamed. And if there's one thing I know... This is a recipe for baby making, okay? <laughs> it's only a matter of time before it happens. You've got one man, one woman married naked, and after all, there's only one prohibition in the Garden of Eden, right? And that is, for those of you who maybe went to church camp, it's not this one. It's not the no purpling deal. That's not the one rule. You know what I'm talking about? Boys are blue, girls are red. You can't blend them together and make purple. You know what I'm saying? No purpling. That wasn't the one prohibition in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden had one rule, don't eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, of good and evil. That was the one rule. 
So that means part of the joy, part of the the privilege of being married in the Garden of Eden is that they got to enjoy one another sexually. It's very clear to us that sex was part of God's very good design from the beginning, not only for procreation, but for the enjoyment and intimacy of the bringing together of one man and one woman in marriage. And this is to, to represent physically what you've already done with the rest of your life. You're, you're, in marriage, your whole life gets intermingled. It all gets brought together as one, and sex is just the physical representation of that all-of-life reality. Now, we can say it's clear that sex is part of God's very good design, but it's also clear by the fact that we're all wearing clothes that things have changed. The fact that you're wearing clothes right now tells us that there was some kind of major disruption from the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2 into Genesis chapter 3, because clothes came after Adam and Eve's sin by taking the fruit and eating it and breaking that one rule God gave them. And as they broke that one rule, what we find is all creation is now broken. All creation is now corrupted by sin. It's defiled. It's still created good, but now it's tainted. Now, this is true of of everything, but it's especially true of Adam and Eve themselves. At the core of their person, they have been corrupted. There is a brokenness in themselves. Now, they're still made in the Imago Dei. They still have that reality that's part of, of their created reality. But now that Imago Dei is tainted by sin, Instead of being naked and unashamed now, they took the fruit, they ate, and the product of this is that now they're afraid, and now they're full of shame. Now, this is because it says it's interesting that they've become aware of their nakedness. It's not that they were once wearing clothes and then took their clothes off, and now they're ashamed. They came to a realization that, oh boy, we're now naked, and that caused some kind of shame that is specifically attached to their reproductive organs. It's interesting. It's, it's an interesting feature of the story that when they feel shame, they don't go and make a parka, right? They don't go make a choir robe to cover from top to bottom. What they do is they take fig leaves and they make a loincloth which covers their genitals. There's something linked to their idea, the, the feeling of shame and these reproductive organs that God has given them. Now, if this is the way that they relate to their own body, it should be no surprise to us that sexuality in general, right, the relationship to sex and sexuality is now compromised as well. In the fall, sin doesn't become bad. Rather, their relationship with sin becomes corrupted. Their body in sinning, had lost its innocence, and now they're plagued with all kinds of baggage, and what we see is that sin, while it corrupts everything under the sun, one of the things it corrupts also is sex. And since that day, things have not gotten any less complicated for us, right? Sex is it's a very, it's a daunting topic. Like even to think that I'm gonna preach one sermon on the topic, there's just so much to say. It's so complicated. There's lots of layers and facets and avenues that must be discussed. Now sin, sin affects the way that we view sex and sexuality and it, and it, it tends to, to tilt us in one of two ways. Either one, we think that sex and sexuality is bad. That there's something in us that thinks, well, there's something that feels shameful about sex. Um, therefore, it must be a product of the fall. Um, and we sort of wholesale sex as sinful. And what we do when we adopt this view is we operate with a, a Gnostic view that the body is bad, right? That physical pleasure, that, that enjoying physical things is bad, and the spirit is what's most important. The spirit is good. 
And so in this case, if you adopt this view, which, which many of the first century writers, as we'll get to um, uh, the book of Thessalonians, that, that's sort of the demographic that the Apostle Paul is speaking to. People, these, these Romans, Greco-Romans, with a Gnostic worldview that the body is bad, the spirit is good. Now, we've had that sort of idea trickle into this, and if you have this view that the body is bad and the spirit is good, or at least superior, then what happens is you view sex as if it's a dirty thing. That every act of sex, regardless of what context it's placed in, is defiling and shameful. And, and, and even, some would even go as far to say that it's a shameful act that's a necessary evil that you must endure in order to have kids. If you want kids, you've got to sin to get them. And some might even say sex is only for that purpose, only for the purpose of, of procreation. Now, if this is the case, if, if this is what you tend to view and hold on to, this is going to make reading the book of Song of Solomon really confusing, right? It, it, it's a book that speaks of sexuality in a very redemptive way, in a way that it is obviously good. It is a good thing for him to delight in the wife of his, his youth, not just for procreation, but as, a, as an enjoyment, as a participation in the intimacy that God has designed for married couples, so the first view that we tend to tell to is, is to view sin as, as it's dirty. Now, the second attitude is, is captured in this Greek saying that the Apostle Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 6. This is another place in, in Scripture where um, there's a, a lot of discussion of, of sexuality. In fact, uh, you can go, I think there are only four books in the New Testament that do not either explicitly uh, reference sex or sexual morality or at least allude to it. Only four books in the New Testament. It's something that's talked about often. Well, one of the places where Paul talks about sexuality is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where he quotes a Greek saying that says, food is made for the stomach and the stomach for food. And, and after he uses that quote, he goes right into talking about sexuality. Now, what he's doing here in connecting that saying and the discussion of sexuality is that he's exposing the view that sex can be viewed as merely an appetite. It's something, it's an appetite that you have that must be fulfilled. It's much like eating. You feel hungry, you go eat. If you feel amped up, a little frisky, Go, go handle business, right? And if sex is, is just an appetite, then why not treat it like the way we treat food? What, like, for example, like um, you don't, most people, maybe you're, maybe you're like my kids and only eat chicken nuggets, but most people, most normal people, don't eat the same food every single day, all right? You go from chicken to pork to beef to fish, like you just bounce around. Italian, Mexican, American, like, you just bounce around. Well, it, if food is, if sex is just an appetite, why not treat sex the way that we treat food? Why, why limit ourselves to one partner? Why, if it's just an appetite, if it's just about what you do with your body, why wait until marriage to partake? Why not go get sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, if it's just an appetite. Well, if sex is just an appetite, what's going to happen is you become a sex glutton. And if it's not with people, it's with other artificial means like pornography. Right? You're just looking for a way to fill that desire. And with this attitude, you get people who say, well, what does it matter? It's just, it's just physical. I mean, it's, just, it's basically the same as scratching an itch. And, and when you boil this down and examine it, this is yet another angle of Gnosticism. In fact, Gnost the reason why I keep coming back to this is, is Gnosticism was the first heresy in the church. Right? The first century uh, church was dealing with Gnostic heresies that said that the body was bad and the spirit was good or the body is irrelevant and doesn't matter what you do with your body. All that matters is what you do with your soul. And so you can have teachers that are saying you can give your soul to God 
But it's up to you to decide what you want to do with your body. You can give it to whoever else you want, right? It's for your own desire. Now, as we compare the, the attitude that sex is dirty and sex is an appetite, it's very easy to see which attitude is most dominant in our culture today, right? I mean, 20 years ago, maybe it was split between the red states and the blue states. But today, it's very obvious that there's it's one majority view of sexuality, and that's an appetite. Now, every culture, because God has created us to be sexual beings, every culture has a sexual element to it. You read the book of 1 Corinthians, like there's, there's, there a, there, there's a lot of stuff going on in the realm of sexuality that the Apostle Paul addresses. So it's not that, that now we have a new thing to deal with with sexuality, but our, our culture is certainly a hyper-sexualized culture. I mean, you can see this from a modest fashion to gaudy advertisements to internet pornography to hookup apps. In fact, here in about 30 days, we'll all be bombarded with a bunch of rainbow, rainbow flags, which promotes Pride Month, which according to Paul is celebrating something that is not worthy of being celebrated at all. In first, or excuse me, in Romans chapter one, he, he speaks of this pride, and really it's, it's a shameful thing. Paul says that, that the thing that they're celebrating uh, is the fact that um, although they didn't know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him God, but they became futile in their thinking. They're, they're celebrating a futile mind and their hearts were darkened and foolish. Claiming to be wise, they became, became fools and exchanged the glory of, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then it says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served creature, creature rather than creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. See, this, this futility of mind, this darkening of heart that's being turned over to the sinful passions is what Pride Month is celebrating. And this is all just pointing to the reality that, that with sexual sin comes brokenness. It, it's, it's destructive. There, there's nothing redemptive about sexual sin or, or participating in this without any kind of course correction. In Genesis chapter 3, death gets introduced into the world. And what sexual sin is, in any capacity, whether it's adultery or fornication or homosexuality or bestiality or, or pedophilia or polygamy, I mean, you go down the list of, of depraved sexual acts, and what you will find is a death culture. Wherever there is sexual immorality, there is brokenness. You want to know why the counseling industry is blowing up right now? You want to know why it takes so long for somebody to go in and, and see a counselor and work through the guilt and the shame or trauma from, from a sexual history? It's because our culture got all swept up in it, and now we're reaping the terrible consequences of this. Sexual sin produces a death culture. Now, if sex is just an appetite, if it's just a matter of scratching an itch, then there, there is no end to its perversions. If sex is just an appetite, well, I want this, so I'm gonna get it, then there's no, there's no bar on what is appropriate and what's not inappropriate, or what's inappropriate. There's no bar on what's lawful and what's unlawful, what's natural, in the words of Paul in Romans 1, and what's unnatural. And if sex is just an appetite, then it's shameless. 
On the other hand, if sex is dirty, if it's to be avoided, then it's seen as shameful. You see how both shamelessness and shamefulness are attached to sexuality, and you can trace that all the way back to Genesis 3. Now, to be shameless means that you are unfazed by depravity and perversion. It means that you are participating in something that is morally wrong according to God's standards and you just don't care. That's what it means to be shameless. But to be ashamed means that you are aware of the potential of disgrace. And so either way, whether you are shameless or ashamed, there is this dysfunctional relationship now with sex and sexuality. But Christianity has a completely different view of sexuality. It's not dirty when it's in the appropriate place, in the appropriate context. It's not shameless. It's not to be avoided. The Bible's view of, of sex is a glorious view. It has a high view. See, the problem with our culture's view of sexuality today is not that that they like it too much is that they like it too little. They have such a low view of sexuality that, that you get all of these different kinds of perversions. But biblical sexuality does not devalue sex, nor does it demonize sex. Biblical sexuality affirms the creational goodness that God created sex and it was good. At the same time, Christians are aware that sin has corrupted sex, that has made, a very, made it for a very difficult relationship. Yet, Jesus came to redeem it. Part of redeeming all things, part of making all things new, is bringing redemption to sex. Now, this is, this is one of the things... Like I said, you see it over and over again in, in the New Testament, but this is why I wanted to bring you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It speaks of it explicitly. Thank, finally then, brothers, he says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we get. So, you know what instructions we gave. Talking about sexuality for the Apostle Paul is part of discipleship. It's an essential piece of discipleship. He says, you know what instructions that we've gave you, given you through the Lord Jesus Christ, for this is the will of God. Now listen, there are not many places in life where you can definitively say, I know the will of God. Here's one of them. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The will of God is for you to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, this does not mean to abstain from sex sort of wholesale, do away with it. What it means is to abstain or free, flee from a certain kind of sex that has been degraded from what, what the Apostle Paul or what our translation calls sexual immorality. Now, the question then is, what is sexual immorality? What is the standard of sexual morality? Now, who gets to define it? That's the other question. Is it the culture or does God get to define it? Now, if the culture gets to define it, what happens is it becomes this standard that, that's ever slipping down, 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 down. We become more depraved, more perverted. The standard drops. As culture changes, the standard changes with culture, but God's standard is fixed because God himself is fixed. God is the same today as he was yesterday and will be for eternity. Because God doesn't change, his standards don't change. Now this is why 2,000 years later that we can pick up the book of Thessalonians and still have it mean a lot, carry a lot of weight, a lot of significance. It could be relevant for our lives today. It's because God's standard doesn't change. Now, the Bible, thankfully, gives us uh, what the clear standards are. In, in, in the English, it's kind of a vague, sexual immorality is sort of a vague statement. 
Um, but when you dial into the Greek, here's, here's the word that, that the Greek uses. Is, it's porneia. You can see where we get the word porn from, porneia. Um, and porneia has a very specific definition. Um, porneia, or sexual immorality, is any sexual act that does not happen within the context of heterosexual marriage. So really what it says is there's one place, one context where sex is appropriate, and that's when one man and one woman are brought together before God. That's the safe space. That's, think of it, sex is fire. Um, I'm not saying like fire, the hip terminology. It is, <laughs> I'm thinking like actual flames, okay? Sex is, is fire in the sense that when, when fire is put in the fireplace, it's a glorious thing, right? When it's in the fireplace, your house isn't going to burn down. But as soon as fire gets out of the place that it was designed to exist, it brings all kinds of destruction. And that one place where sex is meant to exist and to be glorious and enjoyed is within the context of one man, one woman, brought together for life in marriage, sex is too glorious to happen under any other circumstances, under any other contexts. And, and one of the things the Apostle Paul, if you go back, well, I, I know you didn't go there, but to, to think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, realizing that sex is this glorious thing helps us understand why the Apostle Paul tells us that sexual sin is viewed as something that is especially destructive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, it says, um, the same way, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Okay, so that, that's a, a theme that gets brought back up. But he says, for uh, every other sin a person commits outside of the body, but sexual immorality, a person sins against his own body. There's something extra defiling and destructive about sexual sin. And so the Apostle Paul tells Christians, flee from it, abstain from it, run far away from sexual immorality. And he goes on in verse 3, for, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body. So here, it's an, if, if sex is an appetite, if, if, it's going, if you're going to exist with it, you have to learn how to control it. And you control, he says, to control his own body in holiness and honor, right? Holiness and honor. There you have, have glorious language, right? Viewing sex as this, this holy, glorious thing, and we're going to treat it as such. Now, he draws a contrast between the way Christians approach sex and how the Gentiles or non-Christians approach sex. He says that, that um, to, to not do it in the passion of lust like the Gentiles or non-believers who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So, so not only is this, there's this like, you know, a lot of times we would say sexual immorality is something that happens between closed doors, but actually it's not. He says it's something that, that when you do it, it affects other brothers and sisters. It affects the body. It's like gangrene. It spreads. He says, I don't want you to do this, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in the matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So again, back to discipleship. Sexuality is a piece of discipleship. For God has called us for for God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. See, in, in Paul giving his cautions and warnings and commands and instructions about sexuality, he, he's not trying to reduce the enjoyment of sex. He's trying to maximize it. He's showing us how we can guard sex and sexuality from sin so that we can enjoy sex in a way that brings glory and honor to God who made us as sexual beings. See, this is God's design. This is God's standard for sexuality. It's meant to give us joy and life, literally, like to bring about life through procreation. 
Now, what Paul does here as he ends this, this passage in verse 8, he, he warns us that there will be a temptation for his, his audience or for his readers to disregard his instructions. There will be a temptation for, for you to hear biblical teaching on sexuality and say, well, you know what, times have changed. Right? Think, things have, have shaken up a little bit. We've evolved as a culture. We, we have a better understanding of how bodies work and, and the psychology of sexuality. Right? Or, 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 or even you could say, well, th- that's just your opinion, Pastor Sam. But what Paul tells us, say, says, he says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards man, not man, but God. To disregard this teaching on sexuality isn't to, to dismiss mere opinion, but it is to dismiss God who gives us his Holy Spirit. Now, the more that the church talks about sexuality, the more pushback we hear. Come on, like you talk about sexuality, you make, make it a barrier for my homosexual friends or, or those who are caught in sexual immorality for, to come and to be part of this. And so we just need to, the church needs to stop making such a big deal about sexuality. We need to stop holding the stand. And to that, we have to say, church, no. This is God's opinion. This is God's standard. This cannot be morphed and tweaked to our own, in our own liking. Because sexuality is not an arbitrary issue. Sexuality is a key piece of discipleship. It is a key piece of living your life with God. And if, if we say that Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Lord of all, it means that Jesus is Lord of your sex life too. You can't have this Gnostic stuff of, well, I give God my soul, and, and I can do what I want with my body. No, no, it's all God's. First, First Corinthians 6 goes back and says, you were bought with a price. You belong to God, all of it. So what you do with your body reveals what you're already doing with your soul. Are you, are you giving your body and soul to God or are you laying your body down on the altar of idols. Now, one of, one of the biggest idols of our day, and that's what it is, it's, it's, a, um, it's a worship of something that God created that is good, and you elevate it to the status of God. That's what idolatry is, right? To forsake God, to worship something else. Sexual sin, immorality is one of the idols, prominent idols of the day. And I don't know all of it, but I do know that it's so prevalent that there is not a single person in this room that is not a sexual sinner. There's not a single person in this room that has not missed the mark of God's standard and bowed down to the idol of sex. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're in the midst of a, of a battle with pornography. You just... You want to stop, you can't. It's addictive. Something in your brain has been hardwired. And the effects of pornography, I don't have time to talk all, all about this, but this is insane. That what porn is doing to human beings is making us inhumane. It's rewiring our brains that we literally can't even function as humans. You, you have guys my age, I, I'm in my 30, mid-30s, um, I should be in, I'm in the prime of my life, and my peers, why are you laughing at me? We'll talk afterwards. No, no, no. But my social media is blown up with advertisements targeted towards guys my age because they have problems. They need medical uh, intervention to get things to work. Now, they should be functioning right, but pornography has rewired their brains, made it impossible for them to interact with a woman in a way that doesn't objectify her or make her feel weird. And so you have this breakdown. Things don't work right. And this is not just something that, that people outside of this church struggle with. It, it's scary because th- there's polls that show that just by fractions, 
Just, just only fractions less of Christians. So if it's like, if it's like 60% of non-Christians struggle with pornography, it's like 50% of Christians, 60% of non-Christians, 50% of Christians. It's, it's an issue that is prevalent in the church today. And so I know, statistically speaking, there are people in this room struggling with pornography right now. There are people who might be struggling with sex outside of wedlock. Maybe you're in a, a bad relationship or, or you, just, you just can't exercise self-control. I, I know that there are people that are probably in this room that are dealing with shame and guilt from their past. Maybe you're not doing, de- doing that same stuff that you did previously, but you still carry that baggage, that weight, the guilt, the shame. M- maybe, maybe you're struggling with sexual identity. You think, well, this, this desire that I have seems so strong, it seems impossible that God would not have planted that in me. And so you're, you're, you're tor- if you're a Christian, you're torn. I, th- does my allegiance belong to Jesus or does it belong to my desires? And, and, and maybe no one is struggling with that, but I bet we all know somebody who is struggling with that and we feel bad for them and, and we don't want to, to make them feel bad or we want to spare them the conviction of what God's standard is. And so we, we start to want to twist and adapt and lower the bar to be more inclusive. Right? All, all of these things are examples of sexual immorality or giving the stamp of approval of sexual immorality. Or, or if you didn't ca- get caught by any of those, then there's this one. Maybe the sexual immorality that you're caught up in isn't happening outside of the body, it's happening in your heart. As Jesus says, that the man who looks lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Right now we stand in this room, a bunch of sexual sinners. And the only hope that we have is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for sexual sinners and redeeming sex. See, Jesus comes to reaffirm the creational goodness of sex. You see, actually, this is crazy, because Genesis chapter, um, chapter, yeah, one, when God brings man and woman together, um, uh, the two become one flesh, the same thing is repeated in, in 1 Corinthians 6, the same thing Jesus repeats in Matthew 19, reaffirming the creational goodness of marriage and sexuality. Jesus holds the standard. He does not adopt the perversions that were happening in his day and age, the same perversions that we see right now in our culture. Jesus held the standard, but not only that, he modeled the standard. See, sexual sin is so prevalent that it it can happen in your mind, but Jesus was so pure that not a single drop of sexual immorality was to be found in him. That Jesus could execute uh, complete control of his own body and his own mind in holiness and in honor so that he did not get swept up in that which is most alluring and enticing to us as humans. He lived a completely sinless life, no sexual sin at all, and yet he goes to the cross as our substitute. The sinless Savior takes our sin upon himself, and it was nailed to the cross so that we might be forgiven, so that we would be washed clean, that the guilt and the shame, the, 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 the wrinkles and the spot and the nastiness of sin, the, the corruption would be cleansed in us. from the sin that we've committed and the sin which has been sinned against us. But here's the thing. In order to be rid of the shame, you must be convicted of your sin. In order for the shame of your sin to be dealt with, you must realize that sin, sexual sin is a problem. Spirit pokes you in the heart. This, this is what happens. This is, this is the trajectory of what needs to happen to bring somebody from, from the darkness, depravity, perversion to the joy and the glory of biblical sexuality. God must take a shameless person, the, the Romans one person that's, that's swept up in the, the lusts and passions and desires of the flesh, 
convict them by the word of God through the power of the Spirit, provoke them to feel shame, to actually realize that there's actually something broken in me, not to hide from shame, but to see shame for what it was, and then in your shame to long for grace, and then to find grace in Jesus Christ. See, shame leads us to grace in Christ. If we let it, if we let it. And the other option is to to shut it down and become shameless. So either shame will push you towards Jesus or it'll push you away to Jesus, away from Jesus. And when you move towards Jesus in shame, what you find is you stand forgiven. Every sin, as far as the east is from the west, cleansed. But not only do you stand forgiven, but you are given the power of the Holy Spirit. See, this is, this is what Paul speaks of in verse 8 in 1 Thessalonians 4. Whoever there disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Not only are you forgiven, but given the power of the Spirit which is stronger than the power of sin. The Holy Spirit that, that enables self-control, which the fruit of the Spirit, self-control among them, which allows you to say no to sin, that frees us from the bondage of sexual sin, that changes our hearts and our minds so we no longer desire that which is destructive, but long for sex the way, well, sex on God's terms. Now, the Spirit does this through his word, and this this change that the Spirit brings to, to Christians is not easy, but it is certain. It's not easy, but it is certain. The Spirit of God will transform you from one degree of glory to the next as long as your eyes are fixed on Jesus. See, when, when you are so satisfied in Jesus, when you know the kind of love which just, that Jesus loves you with, it causes this thing where you realize, I don't need that. I don't need to run to the altars of idols. I have everything that I need in Jesus. See, when you're so satisfied in Christ, there's no need to look elsewhere. Now, that doesn't mean you don't, you don't get to enjoy sex with your spouse. Right? That's one of the privileges. Right? In fact, this is one of the ways that you fight married folks one of the ways that you fight sexual immorality is by having and enjoying sex with your spouse regularly. And this might be a conversation that you need to have, is like figure out how do we fight this together? Because it comes in different forms. The men might be dealing with one way and women dealing with another way. We need to figure out how we can love each other and work towards each other's sanctification. That's one way that we do it. To live as faithful Christians, I know this is getting long, but it's too important to just gloss over. To live as faithful Christians, not only do we profess that Jesus is Lord, as we profess Jesus is Lord, we destroy the altars of idols. We look at the culture and say, no, this is wicked, this is evil, this is wrong. Not, not in a way... We, we say that, listen, with compassion for those people because they are trapped in sin. But, but we don't let compassion become empathy and override the standard. We don't let that drop. We say God's standard is good. And we say this is it. We, we don't compromise. We must destroy the altars of idols. It starts in our own hearts, Right, fighting for our own sanctification. But this also involves the community. Now, I'm not saying the whole church gets involved in your sexual sin, but you do need brothers and faithful and trustworthy brothers and sisters to hold you accountable, right, to help you fight your sin and fight for faith. And our kids need us. See, this culture... This culture is indoctrinating our kids. Hypersexualized, they're trying to push this agenda that your, your, your joy is found apart from God's standard. 
And it's a lie, a lie from the devil's mouth. For the sake of our sanctification, for our brothers and sisters, for the sake of the sanctification of our kids, we must fight against sin. Now, for some of you, this means go home. Like, you need a, you need a plan. How am I gonna fight my sin today? Figure it out. Seek help if you need it. And as you seek help, as you turn to brothers and sisters, remember the gospel. That in Christ, there is now no condemnation. That in Christ, you are forgiven. You are clothed in his righteousness. Now, sexual sin wants to rob that from you. But so that glory may abound, we fight temptation. We fight sin. And we bring all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is what biblical sexuality looks like. We cannot do this in and of ourselves. We can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We need the spirit. And so we come to you, Lord Jesus. We say, God, pour out your spirit upon your people. You say that you've called us to holiness. You've called us to be a chosen people, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a people for your own possession that we would also possess your own holiness. Would you cultivate that in the lives of your people? Today, Lord, I pray for for those who have been convicted of their sin. I pray, Lord, that their conviction would be brief and would launch them towards your arms, Jesus Christ, that you would wrap them up in your mercy and grace, that you would offer a forgiveness that, that satisfies the accuser and the conscience, and in that we would live lives that glorify you in every facet, in every regard, whether we eat or drink or have sex, all done to the glory of God. We thank you, Lord, for bringing redemption, for giving us great gifts like sex. Help us to know how to use these gifts in a way that magnifies your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.